winter is finally here. And I know you don't want to endure three or four months of nasty weather any more than I do. That's why I'm pleased to tell you again that this episode of Movie Night is brought to you by realtor Tommy Holmes of Palm Beach. Folks, please escape the snow and the ice and the cold and go south with the geese. Tommy Holmes at Illustrated Properties will help you find that dream home in South Florida. Call Tommy Holmes today at 203-570-0026 or email him at tholmes, that's T-H-O-L-M-E-S, at I-P-R-E dot com. And now, it's movie night. life's riddles are answered in the movies. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> Deal with fun. <laughs> this isn't a movie. This is reality. There's a difference. Here's one thing I've learned from the movies. Welcome to Movie Night, a Rye Record podcast. I'm Noah Gattel, film critic for the Rye Record, and this is our Christmas movie extravaganza. Welcome to it, and welcome to the podcast, my co-host, Will Yovanovich. Happy holidays, Noah. How you doing? I'm doing well. Merry Christmas, Will. Oh, thank you, Noah. I'm touched that you remembered my faith tradition. <laughs> well, you, you made a point of it in an earlier episode, and I didn't forget. So you've let off the last couple of episodes with an apology, um, usually on behalf of both of us. So I, you know, I never really signed on to them. But uh, this time I would like to begin this episode with an apology and a correction. Uh, so last week during our draft, I wrongly included Ralph Bellamy as my number one draft pick in great performances by actors 80 and older. When, as you correctly pointed out, Ralph Bellamy was 79 when Trading Places was released. Uh, hmm. I then petulantly counterattacked uh, a later draft pick of yours, which was coincidentally Don Amici, who played Ralph Bellamy's younger brother in Trading Places. Only you picked him for 1988's Things Change. I suggested that he wasn't 80 years old. In fact, uh, he had celebrated his 80th birthday six months before the movie was released. So I was wrong. I was petty. Um, I not only cheated, but also tried to take away a legitimate win of yours. And for that, I'm very, very sorry. You know, that was a great apology. And I will say I did speak to the podcast commissioner and, you know, you were disqualified from last week as we discussed. But I think that apology is going to prevent you from being further penalized for your error. So I think we're, all, we're both on solid ground now at this point. I appreciate that. Um, now, the correction for this week doesn't come from you or me, but actually, I got an email from Brady Corbett, whose affected last name I mocked and whose movie Vox Lux you repeatedly trashed on a podcast episode a few weeks ago. Uh, so Brady wrote to us, Dear Will and Noah, love the podcast. Just a slight correction to last week's episode in which Will suggested that you both could look like Wilfred Brimley in Cocoon when you reached the age of 51. 
I can promise you that you will look like Wilfred Brimley by then, and you probably already do. Best wishes, wow. Brady. Where is where is that wit in Vox Lux? I that's what I'm wondering. You know, I'd say he's saving it for his Oscar acceptance speech, but uh, that may <laughs> not like come to pass. The Razzies, perhaps. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get to the draft. I'm excited about this draft. I've been preparing for it all week. I'm sure you have as well, Will. We're going to be drafting Christmas movies. Now, there's a lot of debate on the internet about what actually constitutes a Christmas movie. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Is Gremlins a Christmas movie? People love to talk about these things, and they never particularly get anywhere. So we're just going to provide a lot of leeway. Will, if you want to pick a traditional Christmas movie, that's great. If you want to go out of the box and pick a non-traditional Christmas movie, that's fine too. But you have to make a strong case for why your choice is actually a Christmas movie and not just a movie set at Christmas. Does that make sense? It does. All right. Well, let's do it. So, Noah, I'd like to make an early Christmas present to you of offering you the first pick in the draft. Oh, that's very kind of you. And you're going to regret it. Look, I didn't want to make an obvious choice for the first pick, but I've been watching a lot of Christmas movies this week. And the true answer to what is the best Christmas movie of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. That's a Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Atta boy, Clarence. Everyone knows this movie. Everyone loves this movie. And I really think about it as if it's the template for the Christmas movie that we have come to love over the years. It's about the triumph of generosity over greed. It's about a guy who, with the help of a supernatural element, learns to appreciate the most important things in life, family, community, love. These are the things that we now call the true meaning of Christmas. And I'm not even sure we knew what that phrase meant before this movie. I really forgot how dark it was. I mean, Jimmy Stewart goes to some really dark places in this movie. There's the scene where he goes to visit Mary when she's home for Christmas break, and he's just like a dick to her. He just breaks her heart in this scene. And then there's the moment later on when he comes home to his wife and family after he loses the $8,000 and he thinks he's going to jail. And he like rages through the house and screams at his kids. We didn't see family men do that sort of thing in 1947. And I think... I actually think that darkness is what interests me the most because it's what makes George's ultimate redemption even sweeter. I think, I think it's, it's a Wonderful Life has gotten more poignant with every year, actually. It got very mixed reviews when it was released in 1947. And I think because that Norman Rockwell depiction of suburban life that it used, that was still being sold. That was still fresh. And the highfalutin critics at like the New York Times thought the movie was sentimental schlock because it felt kind of like a sales job maybe to them. But now, as our world has gotten to be a little more like Pottersville, the shattered version of Bedford Falls that George Bailey sees in that peak at the world if he had never been born, the movie feels like a complete fantasy, something that could never, ever be true. And I think that sort of wish fulfillment is actually what Christmas is all about. Well, 
you've got me there since that was my number one draft pick as well. Yes. I, it's unavoidable. It's, it would be impossible. And I went through all these things. It would just be so difficult to argue that there could be any other movie which could top that, particularly over time. And like you, I've seen that movie a number of times over really a couple of decades now. And what's interesting to me is that it's, it's a Christmas movie but it is also kind of the story of Christ. Jimmy Stewart's character, George Bailey, is a Christ-like mm. figure. He mm -hmm. is constantly tempted with a more exciting and wealthier and more status-driven life. He's constantly trying to get out of the town of Bedford Falls, where he's an important person who always does the right thing and is a great help to its people all along the way from childhood until he's an, almost a middle-aged man. And he's constantly tempted with get out of here, uh, pursue success, pursue wealth, um, see the world. And he never mm -hmm. does. And near sort of midway to the end of the movie, he has a great moment of doubt, which is somewhat in keeping of the story of Jesus Christ. Christ has a moment of doubt, but ultimately he overcomes those doubts. Uh, all right. Well, I took your number one pick, Will. What's your new number one? Well, we talked about making a draft of traditional and non-traditional Christmas movies. So I'm going to step up my number one draft pick to Lethal Weapon, directed mm -hmm. by Richard Donner, 1987. So with all this, and I would say somewhat played out and tired debate on the internet about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie, well... If Die Hard is a Christmas movie, then that practically makes Lethal Weapon the Christmas movie. The very first scene in the movie begins with a recording of Jingle Bell Rock. We are introduced to Mel Gibson, the co-star of the movie with Danny Glover. We're introduced to Mel Gibson at a drug bust in a Christmas tree farm. Um, you have... Uh, one of Danny Glover's friends in the movie shot through a carton of eggnog uh, as a, a hit job to stop him from testifying against some drug dealers. You've got Gary Busey breaking into Danny Glover's family home. There is on the TV set, they're playing a Christmas Carol. I believe it was the 1951 version of a Christmas Carol. And I believe Ebenezer Scrooge near the end of the movie is asking, you know, what day is this? What day is this? And Gary Busey, a sort of coked up, raged out Gary Busey with an M16 yells out the day of Christmas. And then he shoots up the kitchen. Good morning, sir. Tell me, what day is it? What day? The day of Christmas. There's a ton of Christmas references in this movie far more than I've listed, but also makes it a Christmas movie is that it is a story of rebirth and redemption. It prioritizes family and love over money, revenge, mm -hmm. excitement. And it is a, a heartwarming movie, which I believe uh, ends with, or at least one of the ending lines comes from Danny Glover to his now close friend, Mel Gibson, I believe he says, if you think I'm going to eat the world's lousiest Christmas turkey all by myself, you really are crazy. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, that's great. I'm glad you explained that last part because up until then it sounded like this was just a movie that was set at Christmas. But I think you're right. Like the values of the movie definitely align with what we expect of a Christmas movie. And I think also, isn't the scene where Mel Gibson is like contemplating suicide? I think he's watching like a Christmas cartoon in that scene as well. Early it's on a, in the movie. It is a three stooges Christmas set cartoon. There you go. Perfect. It's a great pick. And of course, the writer of Lethal Weapon. Shane Black would go on to write and direct a whole host of other action movies that are set at Christmas. It's really his hallmark as as a filmmaker. But I, I don't know that there's a strong case that many others of those are actual Christmas movies. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about more of them later. But I I, I'm, I buy your case that Lethal Weapon actually is. Okay. So what is your second round pick? I'm staying traditional for my second round pick. I'm going with Muppet Christmas Carol, 1992. Damn. Now, oh, did I, did I nab another one of yours? What <laughs> you a know, shame. I was going to begin next week's podcast by apologizing for delivering a Christmas ass beating to you. But, uh, <laughs> that is looking less and less likely. My, uh, my star in the heavens is dimming. Don't hate the player. You know that will. Uh, a Christmas Carol is the original Christmas story. So I've already got that on my side. All I have to do is argue here that Muppet, Muppet Christmas Carol is the best version of that story. And I think it's no contest. Muppet Christmas Carol has fantastic songs, which no other version of Christmas Carol really does. Uh, they're so incredibly catchy. They have terrific phrasing in these songs, whether it's Scrooge, the opening number, One More Sleep Till Christmas, or my personal favorite, it feels like Christmas. <laughs> it's in the singing of a street corner choir. It's going home and getting warm by the fire. It's true wherever you find love. It feels like Christmas. A cup of kindness that we share with another. A sweet reunion with a friend or a brother. In all the places you find love, it feels like Christmas. Uh, all these songs are really clever and memorable. They're written by Paul Williams, who wrote Rainbow Connection, but also a number of pop songs in the 70s, such as Old Fashioned Love Song by Three Dog Night. And you can really feel the kind of pop song phrasing in the songs, which I think are all great. It also features an absolutely brilliant performance by Michael Caine, which I suspect, Will, is one of the reasons you love this movie. I know you're a big Caine head. And Caine took his acting very seriously in this movie. He actually said that he played it completely straight. He thought about it as if he was doing a Christmas carol for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I think his performance really is what elevates the movie into something genuinely involving, genuinely chilling when it should be. There's some actual terrifying moments in this Muppets movie and ultimately, you know, incredibly heartwarming. It is a great pick. The thing that I find so interesting about it, because I've seen a couple different versions of a Christmas carol. It, sure best because how and i believe it was brian henson i think it's jim henson's son who directed the movie correct managed to so perfectly and neatly work in the usual cast of muppets characters to fit the parts in a christmas carol so kermit the frog is a natural bob cratchit uh, i believe stadler and waldorf the two old men play Ebenezer Scrooge's old partner, but it's old partners, plural, Marley and Marley. 
You have the team of rodents working for Bob Cratchit in the office. Just the use of the puppets or Muppets really in that movie, again, juxtaposed against Michael Caine playing it totally straight. It just adds a richness to it. It, it truly is the best version of A Christmas Carol. Nice. I'm glad we're in agreement. Uh, what's your number two pick, Will? My number two pick, uh, going back to Mr. Jimmy Stewart, is Shop Around the Corner, directed uh, by Ernst Lubitsch in 1940, which was later the story that they made, You've Got Mail, which uh, came out in you know about 50 or 60 years later, uh, which I hope is not on your list because it is a far, far lesser film than Shop Around the Corner. As a matter of fact, there might be a lot we don't know about each other. You know, people seldom go to the trouble of scratching the surface of things to find the inner truth. Well, I really wouldn't care to scratch your surface, Mr. Crawley, because I know exactly what I'd find. Instead of a heart, a handbag. Instead of a soul, a suitcase. And instead of an intellect, a cigarette lighter, which doesn't work. The story takes place in Hungary around Christmas time. And it's the story of two people who want nothing to do with each other falling in love, a Christmas uh, season department store in some kind of trouble and everyone pulling it together to make the holiday season terrific. Uh, it's a story of loneliness that loses to love and the Christmas cheer. And Jimmy Stewart is, you know, any of the sort of the drama the pain that he shows in It's a Wonderful Life, in this, it's pure comedy. It's, I mean, people forget Jimmy Stewart was funny. He had great timing. He had a great deal of charm. And it's great performances by a terrific supporting cast. I believe Margaret Sullivan plays his opposite, his love interest in the movie. And it's, uh, it's, I watched it recently, even though the movie came out in 1940. There's very, very little about it that's dated. It's a, it's a real story that feels like it could happen. Let me ask you this about it. Uh, I, Cause I, I haven't seen the whole movie. It was actually on a couple of weeks ago on Turner classic movies. And I watched the first hour and then I had to go. One thing I noticed is that Jimmy Stewart is quite the heartthrob in this movie. I've never thought of him as that way before, but he was a really, really great romantic lead. But I got an hour into this movie and there was nothing Christmas related in it. Are there actual Christmas scenes in this movie? Yes. The latter half of the movie is very much all about Christmas. They're the shop owner who is discovering that he doesn't have any many, as many friends or loved ones as he realized. He takes in a boy who is an orphan and is alone for Christmas. It includes uh, sort of a lot of uh, sort of big Christmas season holiday shopping moments and this overwhelmed mm. staff that's all pulling together to make this a terrific day. And no, there's just quite a few Christmas references at the end of it. And it's also one of those stories where it just wouldn't work if Christmas wasn't there. Just the Christmas season, particularly in cities, I find when uh, you have movies that are that take place in cities around Christmas time, it captures a lot of that intensity, that energy, the hopes, the fears of being alone on Christmas. And that's a subject that actually gets touched on in a lot of movies. And this was one which got there very, very early of what it's like to find yourself alone or facing being alone on Christmas and the relief and joy that comes of finding someone. There's another movie that touches on that really well that I have a feeling we're going to talk about later in this podcast. But for now, I think that's a terrific pick. 
I'm remembering you've got mail, and I don't think that had any significant Christmas elements to it, did it? It had a few, but they didn't really focus on it the way that Shop Around the Corner does. That's a shame. Because Christmas in New York is very special. I don't know if Christmas in Budapest is a special thing. Or not. <laughs> they sell, They actually celebrated over there before we in America did. You know, whoa. Just I don't want to. You know, <laughs> I don't want to upset any. That's any that's not people with certain views, here, You know. <laughs> uh, all right. Are you ready for my number three pick? Lay it on. I don't know if you're ready for this, but I need you to keep an open mind because my number three pick is Groundhog Day. I'm sorry, what was that again? I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god, I'm not the god, I don't think. Because you survived a car wreck? You folks ready to order? I didn't just survive a wreck. I wasn't just blown up yesterday. This of course is a movie in which Bill Murray plays a weatherman who gets stuck in, uh, what's the name of the town? Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. On Groundhog Day, replaying the same day over and over and over again until he learns, well, certain values that I might call the true meaning of Christmas. Groundhog Day is a Christmas movie not set at Christmas. It contains all the hallmarks of a Christmas movie. Bill Murray's character, Phil Connors, is a greedy, superficial guy who only cares about, you know, pleasure, sex, money, booze. And he learns through a supernatural force, like most of these movies have, uh, this force requires him to relive the same day over and over. He learns what is really important in life, meaning love, generosity, community. These are the values that he learns. These are the values the movie embodies. And they represent the true meaning of Christmas. To me, the fact that Groundhog Day isn't actually set at Christmas is irrelevant. The movie includes... uh, Christmas activities like a snowball fight, the building of a snowman. And, you know, the way we determine if something is a Christmas movie is to ask, could it be set at another time and would it still make sense? I would argue that Groundhog Day would actually make more sense if it was set at Christmas. Hmm. I would, there'd be some issues related to the groundhog, who's sort of the, uh, the MacGuffin, if you will, of the story. Well, you could easily just have him going to this town because they have a really famous Christmas celebration. It's an interesting pick, especially because if only the movie Scrooged, also starring Bill Murray, were his were as well made as Groundhog Day is, because it's it's the yeah. a story of a similar character, a vain, selfish, greedy man whose only concern is himself, who has clearly lost his way, and through the process of being supernaturally stuck reliving the same moment he grows he grows and yes finds the true meaning of christmas of of his own humanity of what it's like to care and love for people um so and trying to remember who directed scrooge was that harold ramus as well or someone similar i don't think it was uh it it was a john landis maybe no it was richard it was no you know what it was richard donner to think Lethal Weapon, Shocking. better Christmas movie than Scrooged. It's a very weird movie. Like, I think it has some poignant moments, actually, but it's really it's kind all of over. It's, it's funny to say it, it's, it's the story of a Christmas carol, yet it's more overacted and fantastic than a, the Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> and they only have people <laughs> well put. these things. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's 
kind of a miss. It's maybe <laughs> worth seeing if you've never seen it before, but uh, I wouldn't put it on my, you know, my Christmas Eve movies to watch. No, for completists only, I would say. What's my your number, number three, three pick, Will? pick is A Christmas Story. Are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole, that's dumb. That's because you know it'll stick. You're full of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah! Like double dog dare you! Now it was serious. A double dog dare. What else was left but a triple dare you? And finally, the coup de grace of all dares, the sinister triple dog dare. Tells the story of a young boy back in the 1950s in America who, in the weeks up to Christmas, has one goal and one goal only, which is to get a Red Rider BB gun. And the different turns the story takes, the ups and downs, the fear that he has in his Christmas wish not coming true. And what I liked about this movie is Christmas is often idealized as as a moment of unbridled hope and joy for little kids. Yet, as experience as a little kid, many people that I've talked to, that holiday season is kind of nerve-wracking. There's extended family that you don't usually see that you don't really want to hang out with. There are these all these objects and gifts that you want that you hear about other kids getting or already have, and it's your biggest hope in the world that you're going to get this thing. And at that age, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know what Santa's going to get you, what your parents are going to get you. You've hoped that you've been good. You don't want to mess things up. And it's kind of a, a sublime moment of fear and hope leading up to that big Christmas morning when it's only revealed then if your dreams have come true. Wow. I really like the pick, Will. And I have to say, I haven't seen a Christmas story. It's one of my big blind spots. Um, It's in that five-year period after I was born. I talked about this last week where I just like haven't seen any movie that came out from 1980 to 1985. But I like the pick because you made me realize something, which is there are very few Christmas movies actually told from the perspective of children period. I mean, Home Alone, I don't know if we're going to talk about that later, but Home Alone is from the perspective of a kid, but it's actually pretty rare, which means Christmas Story uh, certainly deserves recognition and a spot on It has a kind of Wonder Years feel to it, where we talked about the misuse of narration in a prior podcast, but the use of narration as, you know, the character as a much older man is telling the story, because after all, it is a Christmas story, and he's telling the story of what this eight-year-old boy is going through, and it works perfectly. And it's, it's also interesting because it, uh, it includes just a lot of kind of hallmark uh, 1950s, again, that sort of Rockwell feeling of uh, America, but it shows the reality of it, the grittiness, the fear of, a, of an angry father and a disappointed mother and a boy hoping against hope that this, you know, sort of much talked about commercial item is going to be his under the tree. That sounds really good. Maybe I'll have to check it out before this Christmas season bids us adieu. My number four pick is Eyes Wide Shut. This is a movie starring the biggest power couple in Hollywood at the time, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. 
uh, is a movie about infidelity made by one of the darkest, most experimental filmmakers of the 20th century, Stanley Kubrick. So why is this a Christmas movie? Well, first of all, there's Christmas stuff all over this movie. Uh, there's a Christmas tree or Christmas lights in almost every scene. And they're very well thought out. Yeah, there's a big scene at a really rich guy's house in the beginning. And there are these white Christmas lights that are intricately strung throughout the house. Later, we're in a prostitute's apartment. And there are day glow lights on a little tiny crappy tree. So there's a lot of nuance to the way that the Christmas mood is depicted in the movie. And if you're watching this for the first time, it might seem like the Christmas theme is just just for, for character, just to make the movie kind of have a, a, different, a different feel to it. But the whole movie is a Christmas story to me. And in fact, it's a bit like a dark, bizarro version of some of the classic Christmas stories we've talked about already. Just like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life or Ebenezer Scrooge, this character, Dr. Bill Harford, played by Tom Cruise, goes on a tour of what his life might have been like. He learns that his wife considered having an affair and this throws him for a loop. His world is thrown into total chaos. And he goes through this dark night of the soul where he stumbles into these interactions with uh, a child prostitute in one scene, uh, a grown prostitute in another scene. And finally, this big sex party that comprises the film's centerpiece with like masks and cloaks. And it's, it's very grotesque. And in all these scenes, he gets a look at what his life would have been like if he had indulged his self more selfish instincts. And he ultimately learns how good he actually has it at home. And in that way, this is a very, you know, Christmassy movie. And, you know, in all of these Christmas movies, money plays a big role. Like the characters are greedy and they learn not to be. Throughout Bill's tour of the underground of New York City, he's always using his wealth to like get him into places that he couldn't go. He convinces the costume shop owner to, to rent him a costume, even though the store is closed by throwing money at him. When he gets to the big party in the middle, he convinces his cab driver to stay and wait for him by ripping up a $100 bill and promising him the other half when he, when he returns. Um, so his money can buy him happiness for the first half of the movie until all of a sudden it means nothing. And the movie totally changes halfway through. And that kind of learning how little value money actually has is such a consistent message of the Christmas movie. I believe it also, the movie ends with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman after he's relayed to her his whole crazy last 72 hours that you've described, I believe they're shopping for a Christmas gift for their daughter before. Oh yeah. It ends, it ends, it ends, it ends at, at FAO Schwartz. The, the great, the, the once and apparently future FAO Schwartz is coming back to Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> they are, yeah. while they're shopping for a Christmas gift for their daughter, Nicole Kidman, I believe at the end, suggests that after they've done uh, ringing up and purchasing this Christmas gift, that they, uh, they go home to act out some of these crazy fantasies that Tom Cruise has almost indulged in. So it's, uh, it has a lot of Christmas references, perhaps too many. Uh, well, I think it would have been an interesting movie even without all the Christmas stuff. But to me, that just adds a whole other, a whole other layer to the whole thing, as well as some good character. You know, as we see in a lot of these Shane Black movies, just setting things at Christmas makes it more visually interesting and can often provide a nice contrast to what's actually happening in the movie if something dark is happening in the movie. And I think Eyes Wide Shut definitely has some of that. The theme in a lot of Christmas movies is that the holiday times offer more possibilities and opportunities 
than in the rest of the year. And people often say, well, it's Christmas. Anything can happen. There's this, this sense of the fantastic, of the optimistic. And so, I mean, as showed by Eyes Wide Shut, uh, truly anything can happen during these holiday times. Well, what's your number, number four, four pick, pick Will? Uh, continuing along this, uh, I would say, somewhat non-traditional Christmas movie path would be 1992's Batman Returns, directed by Tim Burton. Well, come what may. Merry Christmas, Mr. Wayne. Merry Christmas, Alfred. Goodwill toward men. And women. Much like Eyes Wide Shut and some of the other non-traditional Christmas movies, there is just there's Christmas reference after Christmas reference in this movie. I believe the first scene takes place either on Christmas Day or around the Christmas holiday, where the villain, played by Danny DeVito, is Penguin's original character, Oswald, Oswald Cobblepot is born he's born deformed and his well-to-do family abandons him uh, seemingly to his death only for him to be raised by penguins at the gotham zoo uh, there is a number of big holiday pageants that oftentimes go violently wrong um, a lot of recurring themes of what it's like to be lonely on christmas uh, is portrayed through Michelle Pfeiffer's character of Selena Kyle, who ultimately becomes Catwoman in the movie. She plays this kind of, like so many often depicted, lonely, single women hoping for that Mr. Right uh, to come by on Christmas time, who turns out for her to be Batman, at least for a while. And there's just a uh, constant repeated references to the, the stylized and over-the-top nature of Christmas the gifts, the presents. I believe in, in one scene, there's a giant Christmas present which uh, appears before a large crowd in the city of Gotham, which explodes and out comes all sorts of carnival freaks and criminals and villains. Getting back to discussions of faith and religion, a weird, uh, almost pre-Christian aspect to the movie where the Penguin, played by Danny DeVito, decides to kidnap the first child of every household, every well-to-do household in Gotham. It's sort of hearkening back to the time of Moses and the Pharaohs. That's fascinating. I never thought of it in that, in that context before, but you're totally right. You know, and in fact, Tim Burton, he's made like three Christmas movies of memory serves. He's made Nightmare Before Christmas and Edward Scissorhands has a lot of Christmas elements in it as well. And I think this, he's really, he's really good at what you were talking about before, kind of showing Christmas in a grotesque light, which isn't that hard to do, given the way that Christmas is, is celebrated these days. Well, we're getting here to the end here. We each have one more pick left, and I've got a lot of choices for my last pick here, but I'm going to go with Die Hard, 1988. Now I have a machine gun. We've danced around it. A lot. There's a lot of debate about Die Hard, but I want to have the discussion. So I'm going to choose it for my fifth pick. There are, of course, a lot of Christmas accoutrements in Die Hard. Uh, this is a movie in which a New York cop, of course, comes to Los Angeles to try to win back his wife who has left him. She works in this 
giant building in LA for a Japanese company. And he comes to visit her at the corporate Christmas party. So there's Christmas stuff everywhere. There's Christmas music on the soundtrack throughout. Ho, 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 now I've got a machine gun is one of the most famous moments in the movie. But what makes Die Hard a Christmas movie to me is what is at its core. Because Christmas movies are often about families coming together or families coming back together. And beyond all the bullets and blood, Die Hard is essentially about the reuniting of the McLean family. His wife, Holly, has left to go start her career, in essence, choosing work over family, as many of these characters do that we've already talked about. It's a theme we've seen in all the great Christmas movies. And the movie ends with him really winning her back in every way possible. Not only does he save her life, but she uh, casts off her maiden name in one of the final bits of dialogue in the movie and identifies herself as Mrs. McLean again. It ends with one of the cop characters saying to John McClane, you take good care of her, which is sort of a very traditional uh, family, a traditional way to look at, at family. And there's a lot about this that is actually controversial. There are a lot of arguments out there that, that this depiction of uh, traditional family values is a response to second wave feminism and that the movie is arguing that women are better off at home and not in the workplace. And I don't really want to get into all that on this particular podcast. I will just say that the reuniting of the family that this movie clearly shows is what makes it a Christmas movie. Yeah, I got to agree with you. Um, it also shows the other side of that, which is that there's quite a few lonely people whose uh, loneliness is exacerbated by this being Christmas. Obviously, you have uh, Holly's coworker who you know ends up trying to... Uh, be a big hero and save the day and it doesn't quite work out for him uh he's acting like a bit of a jerk at the party and i believe he's uh using a little recreational cocaine and bruce willis's character complains about him and uh i believe holly says something to the effect that well you know he's lonely and it's christmas you also have the uh the tv mm. reporter uh Dick Thornburg, I believe, uh, before finding out about the hostage situation at Nakatomi Plaza, he's calling up women, asking them for dates. To, you know, it's a, a few hours before it's Christmas and he's got no one to be with on Christmas Eve. So it really does has quite a few Christmas references beyond just the tree and the Santa Claus stuff. Um, but you're, you're right. The true meaning of Christmas or a true meaning of Christmas is often families getting together and uh this is one hell of a reunification okay well will bubby <laughs> what is your fifth pick so going uh, going back to a, a much more traditional christmas movie though not going that far back i gotta go with home alone 1990 directed by christopher columbus i believe written by john hughes also touching on what I talked about in A Christmas Story, it really, as, as the youngest child in a family, I identified a lot with this movie where you've got extended family and cousins and older brothers that you don't really like. Um, you have, now, to be clear, I, I do like the, my brother now, um, and not just because he is the impresario and boss of the RyeRecord.com, which is hosting this podcast, but, uh, you know, he and I definitely had a, uh, a Kevin and Buzz relationship, I would say, about 30 years ago, mm -hmm. which is near when this movie was made. 
And it, I mean, talk about finding the true meaning of Christmas is the story of a boy who wishes his family didn't exist anymore of uh, wanting a house all to himself, <laughs> toys all to himself, his own personal cheese pizza all to himself. I, there were definitely a few Christmas and holiday seasons where I, I would wish for perhaps a little bit of distance from my family, because when you're the littlest one, sort of the run to the litter around Christmas time, there's all this stuff going on that you don't have a say in. And no one's necessarily thinking about you. You don't call any shots and you really don't control what's going to happen next. You're sort of being carried along from one thing to another. And in this story, it shows really the value of family, um, the value of reaching out and connecting to people in these holiday times. I think one of my favorite movie scenes really of all time is the scene where Kevin finally sits down next to this old man who is a neighbor of his, who he has been absolutely terrified of throughout the movie. He's this old guy who's always silently shoveling his driveway. And every time Kevin sees him, he runs away. Well, Kevin works up the courage to sit down and connect with this man and talk to him. And he discovers that this old man is distant from his family. He has stopped talking to them. Um, he is all alone on Christmas Eve. And as we see in the end, both he he and Kevin are reunited with their families, which is really showing that that's truly the greatest present of all is to be connected or reconnected to the ones that you love. It's a strong pick to close out the draft here. I'm not as big a fan of the movie as you are, I think, because I don't relate to it as much. I was always the center of attention in my house on Christmas, so there, there was no chance of me being ignored or left behind. But I do love that scene that you talk about, and there's definitely a lot to recommend in that movie. So we're at the end here, but I think we should just touch briefly on some of the more well-known Christmas movies that we did not talk about today. So do you want to do a lightning round, um, you Will? Yeah. So you're going to toss out some movies and I'm going to respond to them or what are we going to do here? I'll say, uh, yeah, I'll give, I'll give a title of a movie. You tell me briefly what you think and All I'll right. tell you what. Toss I them think. out. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's pretty good, uh, especially for its depiction of the yuppies who live next door. Julie Louis-Dreyfus is terrific in it. Uh, great supporting characters. Again, like a lot of Chevy Chase movies, everyone around Chevy Chase is better than Chevy Chase in it. But it's, it's pretty tight, it's pretty sharp. I, I uh, good Brian Doyle Murray, if we're talking about Murray's uh, in prior draft picks. Uh, strong performance by him. Yeah, very enjoyable movie. I like it too. I watched it again recently. And I think it, there's a little disconnect between the broader elements and the more sharply observed elements, I think. Uh, but I love the yuppies. Everything with the yuppies is fantastic. I actually like the scenes between Chevy Chase and Randy Quaid as well. Cousin Eddie's obliviousness, obliviousness to how much Clark hates him is pretty enjoyable and I think very spot on. What about Love Actually? Well, and actually somebody made a tweet earlier today that the remake or sequel to this movie should be called Well Actually, where the movie just delves into all the things that are problematic with the first film in terms of sexism, fat shaming, um, just a, a lot of weird issues that keep on coming up with the movie. It's one of those movies that I, I really enjoyed it the first time that I saw it, though not as much as apparently the entire world that was just gaga about it. Um, 
but as time goes on, I have less and less use for the movie. It's not, despite all of its emphasis on Christmas, I don't really find much of the true meaning of Christmas in it at all. I think it works better as a rom-com than as a Christmas movie, to be perfectly honest, but I do like it. In fact, a few years ago, there were a number of think pieces written back and forth about whether love actually is good or not. I wrote one myself for a website called Movie Mezzanine uh, that people can check out if they want to. I believe the piece is called What the Love Actually Wars Are Really About. Now, this next movie I'm going to mention, I'm shocked you didn't have it on your list. I actually thought you might have it number one, so I have to assume you don't consider it a Christmas movie, and that movie is The Apartment. Okay, so The Apartment, it was on my list for a time, and then I got rid of it. The Apartment's one of my favorite movies. It's probably in my top five movies of all time, directed by Billy Wilder, starring Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, and a great supporting performance by Fred McMurray as a philandering boss. It's a terrific movie, but there's, and while some of it takes place, obviously, around Christmas time, there's not that much Christmas in the movie, obviously, aside from the holiday party. It's more, it's much more a story about New York City, if there's a background to it, than there is about Christmas. And yes, it does touch on the, you know, you've got a couple of single, lonely people on Christmas and the things that oftentimes happen with a mix of loneliness alcoholism and uh you know christmas time but uh yeah it's it's a terrific movie i just i don't ever think of it as a christmas movie and there aren't quite enough references to christmas that really make it uh a strong pick for that it's actually almost more of a new year's movie than it is a christmas movie i think that's fair i do think as you say it really does capture the the loneliness uh, that can happen at christmas and that kind of you know hey, we're all here alone. I'll take anybody home from the bar tonight just so I don't have to be alone that is exacerbated at Christmas. I thought the movie captured that incredibly well. Let's do one more. I, I, I don't think we can end this podcast without talking about Elf. What's your take on Buddy I the like Elf? I like Buddy the Elf. It's actually the, the Christmas parts of it are the most interesting and enjoyable parts of the story. I actually get a little bit tired of Will Ferrell in it after a while. I think uh, great supporting characters. The story of James Kahn, who plays his estranged biological father, is actually a a more interesting story than the main character's arc of Will Ferrell as Buddy the Elf, who is a kind of fish out of water leaving the North Pole to reunite with his real father in New York City. But the references to uh, Santa and the uh, the Central Park Rangers being put on the naughty list and how uh, New York City has lost its Christmas cheer and perhaps all around the world we've lost our Christmas cheer and it's making Santa Claus lose his powers. I actually thought was a, a pretty interesting theme and the city reconnecting to Christmas, singing, almost sort of wishing Santa Claus's sleigh back up in the air. It is actually touching. It's a little bit small, small but you know, I, I do get a little bit of a tear to my eye every time I see Santa soaring above the crowd once again. I'm with you 100%. I think the movie's got some problems. It doesn't hold up that well. Uh, but I, I'm here for the fish out of water comedy stuff. You know, this was Will Ferrell's first big movie that he starred in himself. It sort of made him a star. And I think it's hard to make a Christmas classic in this day and age, in the modern era. And this is pretty much the last one, the most recent Christmas classic that has been made in Hollywood. So I think we have to give it some credit for that. 
Well, this has been a great draft, Will. I've really enjoyed doing it. Um, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. And just for our listeners, next week, we're going to be doing our year-end 2018 show. I know Will has been cramming for this. I've been cramming for it as well. So please do tune in for that. By the way, if you get a chance, um, share the podcast on social media, rate and review it on iTunes. I know everybody says that stuff really helps. That's because it really helps. But we'd all appreciate for a Christmas gift to us, any support that you can throw. Oh, and by cramming Noah meant I watched Venom five times on pay-per-view last week, um, which I I plan on devoting a sizable part of the show towards discussing and exalting (laughs) next week. So tune in. Might be a solo episode. I might skip that one. So until next week, we'll see you at the movies. I thought you were going to say, God bless us, everyone. Well, I hadn't exactly stuck the landing. And well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock, I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to pick my baby up and take her to the picture show. Everybody in the neighborhood is dressing up to be there too.